0: From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, campus closed after COVID-19 cases continue to rise. The problem with ProctorTrack, the imperfections of Syracuse Law School's new way of tracking student integrity, and another unusual ending. Students' reactions to another semester cut short at SU. It's Tuesday, November 17th, 2020.
1: So when I first saw that email and saw the COVID tracker being updated shortly after, that was pretty much when I started to think that this in-person semester might not last all the way until the end. Because there was a few things we'd been hearing up until that point. And in that that email, that sort of indicated that the in-person semester we'd been managing so far wasn't going as well as we had thought. And the big thing was that Chancellor Haney indicated and that the other university officials who were sort of sending communications around that time indicated that more students were contracting the coronavirus, not from super spreader events like the one that caused a cluster in early October, but they were getting it from community spread in the wider central New York community. And why that's significant is because every epidemiologist we've spoken to has said it was integral for the transmission rate to be low in central New York for us to be able to continue instruction. Without that, kids were just going to get the virus in the community, and there was no way we could sort of maintain that campus bubble that the university had been striving towards. So... When we heard that there was community spread and outbring cases to SU's campus, it started to make us think that things may be going off the rails. I'm Chris Steele, and I'm the news editor for The Daily Orange.
0: So Chris, can you give us an overview day by day of what has happened on campus this week?
1: If we're looking at this day by day at the caseloads, we saw on the 9th 20 new cases. And this was when, of course, they announced the end of in-person classes would be moved up to November 16th. And this is when they announced sort of a resumed pause on student activities because we just had student activities be allowed to continue a few weeks earlier after going on pause following the October cluster. So there were 20 new cases that day, which at that point to us seemed fairly large. That was an increase on par with the, the largest spike we had seen up until that point, at the worst point. In the semester, you know, those are the kinds of increases we are seeing day by day. And then the 10th came, and we noticed that SU hadn't updated its coronavirus tracker fairly late in the day. They generally promise to update it by 5 p.m. every day, and the closer it gets to 5 p.m. without the numbers being updated, usually means something might be wrong. And when the numbers did update, it was 50 new cases, which was unheard of. I can't emphasize how bad that is in the context of Syracuse University. The Again, the largest case increases we'd seen per day up until that point were like 20. So when it increased 50, you're looking at more than double the previous record for single day increases. That is a massive amount of students. And in terms of contact tracing, since a lot of those cases weren't coming from super spreader events, that is a Herculean effort to try and trace all those cases. And beyond that, it put us within a hair's breadth of New York State's 100 case maximum. If we hit 100 positive tests in a two-week period, we have to go online. And we are at the beginning of that current two-week period. University communicated shortly after that it was likely we'd be moving to online-only classes early, as in November 16th, we'd be going to online classes even earlier than that. And then that brought us to Wednesday. So at that point, we were at 80-plus positive tests in the current two-week period, and we started getting rumors over at the news staff the university would be transitioning to fully online classes effective the next morning. I was able to get in touch with the university's communications team, sort of got an advanced heads-up that that decision would be coming down around 4 p.m., and we were able to have that news prepared for when it broke. And that more or less brings us to where we are now. We saw another 52 case increase that day and the day after a case increase in the 40s. So we're now looking at, as of the time of this recording, 220 plus active cases at Syracuse University, which is unheard of in the context of this semester.
0: And now going beyond classes, what campus services have now stopped due to the rise in cases? And I guess with that, what services have adapted and what can SU students on campus still do?
1: Well, obviously, the big thing that that shut down is classes. And I think for a lot of classes, that is is difficult because I think some professors were depending on having these last weeks in person to do some sort of final assessment that required an in-person component whether your professor just didn't want to use online testing or wanted to do something in the classroom that would work as a final assessment that's now out the window i think a lot of faculty are going to have to reimagine what their final assessments look like for their class and what the end of their semester looks like for their class and that's going to inconvenience a lot of students and faculty alike beyond that as far as what's shut down on campus Gyms are closed. We saw the Barnes Center and satellite facilities close during the cluster in October, and that's resumed. Those facilities will presumably not be open for the rest of the semester. We have seen libraries close, so Byrd and Carnegie are now no longer accessible to SE students along with other smaller libraries on campus, with the exception of sort of online book reservations and, and that kind of thing. So we are seeing... I think academic buildings remain open, some cafes remain open on campus, as are the, you know, the academic buildings they're in, but some of them are only accessible through card swipe access, so students don't really have the breadth of places to go to work and study that they used to during what I guess we could consider normal for the semester, though I can't say the semester has ever been normal. So there isn't really a whole lot left for students to do on campus at this point, and The university understands that, and they've been communicating. They understand students are going to sort of try and make a mass exodus from the university, and they've been sort of scrambling to provide accommodations for students leaving early and also make sure those students get tested before they leave, because that's something SU has been really trying to push is for students to get one final coronavirus test to sort of protect their family before heading home.
0: And so with all of these new changes, what does this mean for students' departure from campus?
1: So the departure procedure from campus was already fairly COVID safe. It was already oriented around not spreading coronavirus while students are moving out. Because, again, for a lot of students who don't have access to cars, their parents are picking them up probably from out of state. So there was already concerns there. What the university has done is sort of ramped up what transportation it's providing so kids can, maybe if their parents aren't available to pick them up, the university is now providing bus service to some major cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston. And that's sort of the one big change the university has made. Otherwise, the exit procedures are fairly similar to what we've been communicated throughout the semester.
0: So you mentioned this earlier, but how is COVID-19 in Onondaga County doing beyond Syracuse's campus?
1: So one of the important things to note here is we're never going to be able to fully know what caused this spike in cases. I've heard a lot of people theorize that, oh, it's it's two weeks after Halloween, kids were irresponsible and they spread the virus to each other over what is traditionally a very large party weekend at Syracuse University. That may be true, but if it is, it's only partially true. There has been a huge spike in transmission, not just in Syracuse University or on Syracuse University's campus, not just in Onondaga County, although there has been, but in New York State and nationwide, there's been a huge spike in cases. It's a nationwide trend, and it's been reflected at the county level. And as cases increase... In central New York, we've seen a a corresponding increase at SU. So this likely all tracks back to just an increase of cases in the community and that leaking onto SU's campus. And whether parties or any specific incidents played a role in that, I think it's only a secondary factor.
0: And so, Chris, with this, how does this relate to the second wave of COVID-19 that was predicted to happen in the winter?
1: Right. So when we first wrote about the second wave and what do we mean for our fall semester, the people we spoke to approximated it taking place in September. They weren't too far off in that prediction. We started to see this serious increase in October, towards the end of October. And now we're really feeling its effects. So the second wave hit Syracuse University in full force. And it is largely responsible for us moving classes online now. And it's largely going to define whether we'll be able to return in the spring. if the transmission is not any lower in Onondaga County when we're scheduled to return, Syracuse University administrators will have to have a serious conversation about delaying continuation of in-person classes or maybe not having them at all. That's a serious conversation they will have to have, assuming the rate of transmission is the same or higher than it is now. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we see sort of a return to the low stable transmission rates come January that we saw at the beginning of the fall. But that's not guaranteed.
0: And Chris, even though this does not seem like that long ago, on our first podcast of this school year, you referred to this semester as a series of experiments in pandemic management, in higher education, where students are, you know, test subjects. How do you think that experiment went? And what do you think we can take away from all of this?
1: Well, how the experiment went? It's tough to say. You read the university emails, they'll tell you that we succeeded. The experiment went great. We made it all the way within one week, maybe week and a half of our scheduled, you know, planned end of in-person classes, and by all means, it was a success. I think the full story is more nuanced than that. I think we had some very fortunate circumstances coming back to campus in a community that had an incredibly low rate of transmission. And we were able, to our own credit, prevent sort of the mass spread of the virus on our campus during that time frame. But what I think the takeaway of the experiment is is that a complete true campus bubble, especially in a university like Syracuse University that is very woven into the city, where students live in the surrounding neighborhoods and in the city itself, a true campus bubble is impossible. Those cases will spread to off-campus students, they will spread then to on-campus students, and that bubble is, it's an admirable goal. It's definitely what the experiment should shoot for, but it's its just not possible. I think if we've seen one thing, it's that.
0: Chris Hibbenstiel is the news editor at the Daily Orange. You can read the news staff's coverage of this story on the Daily Orange website. Chris, as always, thank you so much for your information and your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So ProctorTrack is an anti-cheating software, and basically it uses remote monitoring technology to collect audio and video and document students' web activity while they're taking exams. In addition to that, it monitors a bunch of other body features. So it scans faces, knuckles, students, photo IDs. And so Syracuse's College of Law will be using the software to administer their final exams. So students in classes where professors are using the software will have to download it. It's basically something that appears on your screen as you take the exam and it monitors the exam and then flags the exam for suspicious activity that might indicate cheating. My name is Michael Sessa and I'm an assistant news editor with the Daily Orange.
0: And so Michael, what are some of the issues with the software?
2: So, so there's a lot of complaints and concerns about the software. And there's kind of two sides of it. The first being security and data concerns. ProctorTrap is a software that was developed and is licensed by this New York-based company called Verificient Technologies. And that company has been involved in a number of fairly high-profile security breaches, most recently and notably at Rutgers University, where the school had to halt their exams while the company figured out what went wrong. And so the company maintains that no student data has ever been compromised. So there might have been security breaches, but not data breaches per se. But students still have concerns that all of this very personal, identifying information is being collected by the software, and then they don't know what that information is used for, how long it's stored, and if there were to be a breach, who would have access to it. And then the second concern has to do with bias. So this isn't unique to Track, but to test proctoring softwares in general but the things they flag and the ways they operate mean that they are inherently racist, ableist, transphobic. These technologies are engineered by predominantly white cisgender heterosexual men which means that the products are best at identifying those sorts of faces. So when students of color use the software they often get kicked out of the test, they often have to log in again, or they have to shine a flashlight or something into their face because they are literally too dark for the software to identify them. Students with disabilities who might have tics or move around a lot, that gets flagged by the software as suspicious. And then the software also makes you scan your photo ID. So for transgender students, They might have to present a photo ID with inaccurate name or gender information, and that could out them to their professors or their peers. There's a lot of issues.
0: And so have other universities used this software before? And if so, you know, how did this work out for them?
2: So it is being used by a number of universities, some of which still use the software, some of which do not. In most cases, as SU has said in their response to students, The company is being open about working with schools and trying to remedy these issues, but that hasn't done much to quell concerns among students.
0: And you spoke with Craig Boyce, the dean of the College of Law. What did he say is the best way to measure students' academic integrity?
2: Boyce is the dean, and he responded to student concerns uh, about two or three days after the school first announced it would be using the software, with a fairly detailed, a long explanation, which <laughs> surprisingly, unsurprisingly, I guess, did not uh, satisfy most students. His argument is that professors and human people are the ultimate arbiters of academic integrity. So just because the software flags something doesn't mean that that's necessarily cheating because there are going to be professors, deans, other school officials making those determinations. People who don't like the software would argue that that's besides the point, you know, you've already implemented this racist, ableist, transphobic software, and it's done its damage and flagged people as suspicious solely for their identity, even if you're going to be flexible about what you identify as cheating after the fact
0: so you just mentioned that some people who don't necessarily agree with him didn't necessarily like his statement. How did students feel about his statement?
2: The students I talked to were not very satisfied with the statement. So a lot of the students have banded together. They made a change.org petition. They ran an email campaign to deans and professors, and they also made a Facebook group. And on their Facebook group, they posted quite a long rebuttal to the dean's statement. And essentially, the feeling there is that as much as the school says it understands their concerns and sympathizes with them, or even shares their concerns, evidently not enough to change course, which is problematic. And the experts I talked to shared the same concerns. After the school responded, I forwarded the response to those experts, and they called it underwhelming. They said the points they made were incorrect or just didn't actually address the issues. So that feeling seems to be fairly universal.
0: You're giving us this idea right now, but how are some law school students feeling about the new proctoring software? Specifically, can you walk me through some of their concerns?
2: Yeah, so their concerns mirror basically those basic concerns right, around bias issues and then data security issues. But for a lot of them, that could be very personal. So one of the folks I talked to, is a single mother who's in an online program with a law school who will have to use this software, and they're a single mother of an eight-year-old son, and at the moment that eight-year-old son is at home doing school virtually because of the pandemic, and often they might need help logging into something or something like that, and simply responding to her son's questions or looking off screen to make sure her son's okay would be create a flag in the exam for cheating or for suspicious activity. And that same person also about a decade ago was the subject of a break-in where robbers stole personal information, banking and credit card information that's still used to break into their accounts to this day. So for a lot of students, it's very personal and they have the experiences to know better than to blindly kind of uh, use this type of software.
0: And so if the college decides to go through with this proctoring software, what do students want them to include?
2: So I would start by saying most students don't. The overwhelming opinion is that the school needs to drop the software, that it's not appropriate, and that there's really no equitable or safe way to implement it. However, if they're going to go through with it, some students we talk to want some sort of guarantee from the school that if their personal information is breached, are used by some third party, and it has implications for their finances or their future, that the school's gonna back them up and protect them in some sort of way.
0: Finally, what did students say this backlash about the software indicates?
2: Well, first and foremost, I think there's a feeling among students that school officials don't have their best interests at heart, but also a feeling among students and the experts that it's indicative of a problem with pedagogy or with the way the school wants to assess or grade students, right? So in the College of Law, it's often the case that uh, your entire grade is based on one exam. So there's a lot of writing on that experience and a lot of preparation and stuff that goes into it. But the folks we talked to said that if it's the approach to aggressively monitor students for cheating, then the school's priorities are already off, and it might be an indication that they need to shift their approach to assessing students to something that is more equitable.
0: Michael Sessa is an assistant news editor for the Daily Orange. You can read his article, College of Law Will Use Proctoring Software Despite Bias, Security Concerns, on the Daily Orange website. Michael, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thanks for having me. On Wednesday, SU announced that it would be moving classes online for the remainder of the fall semester. Originally, classes weren't supposed to end in person like November 25th, and then they moved it up to the 16th on Monday, and then cases spiked in both the county and on campus, and they decided to move all classes online starting Thursday. So Wednesday was the last day of in-person classes. I'm Sarah Alessandrini. I'm an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. So
0: Sarah, how are students feeling about this announcement?
3: Students, now that the announcement came suddenly, but also expectedly, by around Tuesday, a lot of students had said they were feeling like they wanted to prepare for the worst, which is if classes went online, but still the news kind of came as a shock and they didn't really feel like they had all the answers. A lot of students said, I don't really know how my classes are going to look going forward. I don't know when I'm going to go home because a lot of them had planned on going home like a week or two later. But now that classes are online, but also a lot of the cafes are closed and a lot of sitting areas on campus are closed. So with everything like that and a lot of students, you know, sheltering in place Students just are facing a lot of uncertainty with the news, like when are they going to go home? Are they going to go home, try to go home early if they could? Are they going to stay on campus? What do they need for their online classes? Some students have a lot of like very hands-on in-person classes. So what kind of materials are they going to need? Just a lot of confusion and uncertainty surrounding the news that everything's going to change. The Daily Orange spoke to
0: a few students on campus about their thoughts on this change in the semester First, tell me about Ben Hartfeld and how he feels about the semester.
3: So Ben, it's his second year, he's a sophomore, and he made the point that he feels like he has never had a normal semester at SU because, well, now that this semester is ending early because of COVID, same thing, he hasn't really gotten to say a proper goodbye to a lot of his friends. And same thing with last semester, second semester, it ended early. And then first semester of his freshman year, there were the series of hate crimes on campus with Not Again SU. A lot of students left early for Thanksgiving break because they felt unsafe about that. So now as a sophomore, it's only his second year. It's his second fall semester. He feels like he's just never had a normal semester during his time at Syracuse University. And I'm sure a lot of sophomores feel the exact same way. Like, this is our college experience, and every semester so far has had some kind of strange, bizarre events occurring that make it just feel very abnormal. And once again, we're ending a semester sort of suddenly and not really getting to say a proper goodbye. And that's how Ben had felt, even though he knew that it was for the best, that with cases spiking, it was best that campus went on pause, went online. He's still disappointed, though, that he's ending the semester this way.
0: And can you also tell me about the architecture students you spoke to and how they're feeling about this end of the semester?
3: So, like most students, the architecture majors I spoke with starting Monday, Tuesday, we're starting to feel like maybe we should be ready, maybe we should be preparing for the worst so i talked to some students who went and cleaned their stuff out from the studio just to be prepared but really they were hoping and they really thought that they would have more studio time they've been working on like a bi-weekly studio schedule so like They split the class into two groups and every other week they've been going to the studio. So these students I spoke with went and got their stuff just to be safe. But then they were deep down hoping that it would stay in person and they would be back in the studio, especially because now once the news broke that classes were moving online, they didn't really get any immediate clarification from their professors as to What materials are they going to need for these classes? The one student I spoke with, Julia, she wasn't sure that she needed her art board or her sketch pad. And she said that's really huge. And she lives in Michigan, so her parents are coming to pick her up. And she's like, I don't even know if I could fit that in the car. Like, do I need to bring that home? Do I need to leave it? So there's just a lot of uncertainty and questions right now surrounding what classes are going to look like architecture majors did say that they're going to have their final reviews on zoom. That is certain. And it's going to be like a five hour zoom session that they didn't seem to be looking forward to too much. So yeah, just a lot of uncertainty and questions surrounding what the end of end of the semester is going to look like.
0: And so Sarah, you briefly mentioned that this isn't just a struggle for students, but it's also a struggle for professors. You know, what about their professors? How are they figuring out how to distribute work?
3: So a lot of professors have been sort of prepared for this moving classes online. A lot of professors have already had plans in place. A lot of classes have already been online. I spoke with some students who said, you know, this isn't going to change much for them because all their classes were already online. The biggest change is that now that everyone's online and now that also other places on campus are closing cafes and sitting areas that campus is going to be mostly on pause for the next few weeks. That's the biggest change for some students who have already been taking mostly classes online. So it's just a matter of now that everyone's going to be leaving campus, should students stay? Should students leave? There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding that. And with that, did students
0: think that this transition was going to happen this early?
3: A lot of students had said that they were really hoping that They would make it to the end of the semester. It seemed pretty good for a while. Some students were kind of starting to feel like, you know, this was coming. It was sort of a mixed reaction, honestly. I think most students felt that while it wasn't necessarily unexpected, because in the past few weeks, cases have been rising, there have been clusters found. It still did come as a shock because it did drop so suddenly that, okay, this is happening now. It almost seemed like it was a matter of time before things were going to move online. But once the news finally did break that it's official, we are going online, students weren't really prepared for it, even though they said they saw it coming. And it was still just as, as disappointing.
0: And so did students think that moving online was the right call from Syracuse?
3: Overwhelmingly, yes. Everyone felt that with cases going up on campus, they were... Happy with the university's decision to move classes online and that was the best thing for everyone to keep everyone safe. So as much as students were maybe upset that the semester is ending so early and now a lot of students are preparing to leave early and go home earlier than anticipated, students do feel like it was the best option to move classes online.
0: And finally, how is the announcement impacting students' departures from campus?
3: A lot of students are planning on leaving either earlier than their scheduled checkout time or just are uncertain now when they're going to go home because a lot of students who had anticipated going home maybe the 20th or the 25th now are thinking, am I going to spend all this time on campus with classes online, with other friends leaving, with really nothing to do with dining halls closed and everything? So a lot of students are just wondering You know, am I going to wait that long or am I going to try to leave earlier? Some students I spoke with have flights booked and were unable to move those up. So they have no choice. They have to stay. It would be too expensive or they just were unable to book another flight. So some students are saying, but they would prefer to go home. But even the university was prepared for students leaving earlier than anticipated. Originally, students could check out as early as the 14th. But in a lot of university emails, they had all clarified, you know, if you're leaving earlier that's fine because now the classes are online, I think they do kind of just want students out anyway.
0: Sarah Alessandrini is an assistant news editor for the Daily Orange. You can read her article, Sudden End to In-Person Classes Leaves Some Students Feeling Uncertain on the Daily Orange website. Sarah, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. A special thank you to Chris, Michael, and Sarah. And thanks to our producers, Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlehi, and Adam Garrity. I want to give a special thank you today to our executive producer, Elizabeth Kama. This is her last week as executive producer of the Daily Orange podcasts. And if you've listened for a while now, Lizzie is the person who works tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure that our podcasts are ready for you to listen to each week. Being able to work with her for the last two semesters has been an incredible experience, and I'm so excited to see what she does in the future. So thank you, Lizzie, for the great work you've done for this podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next semester.